Hello, and welcome to Writing Matters, a podcast on books and creativity brought to you by the Writing University and the Department of English at the University of Iowa. I'm Blaine Gretemann, Professor of English and Chair of that department. My guest today is Louisa Hall, an Associate Professor of English at the University of Iowa and the author of four critically acclaimed novels, including her most recent, Reproduction, which was published by Echo in 2023. Her previous novel, Trinity, was shortlisted for the International Dylan Thomas Award and the winner of the Langham Prize for Historical Fiction. Before that, her novel Speak was a best book of the year in NPR, Slate, and the Washington Post. Reproduction is a work of autofiction in which a character with some close parallels to Louisa attempts to write a book about Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, while struggling with her own painful experiences of pregnancy, childbirth, and the moral questions surrounding genetic modification. We talk about the genre of autofiction, being a secretive child writer, and what it means to feel like an animal. I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start by showing you my copy <laughs> of your book because it is all swollen up and all the pages fall, fell out because I took it on a trip with me to the nation's largest alpine lake up in Yellowstone and I soaked it thoroughly and it fell apart but I kind of put it back together and, <laughs> and finished it and really loved it and there's that scene in the novel where you go to an alpine lake to do mm-hmm. research and I, I wanted just to ask you about research, because sometimes with creative writing, you know, we don't necessarily think about research as mm-hmm. intimately involved with it. But you have this, you have a really interesting background. You have a PhD in literature, also written several novels at this point. And so I thought I would just ask you um, about like what research looks like mm-hmm. as a fiction writer yeah. How it's related to the kind of research you might have done when you were doing a dissertation in the Renaissance. And... Yeah. I, I, I would imagine it's different for every novel, sort of how much research the novel asks for. Um, this is a novel that kind of presents itself in some ways as a fictional work of criticism. Um, it's like engaging very heavily with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein throughout, but kind of the dirty secret of... Um, the kind of criticism it is or the kind of research I was doing is that it's not very good research and it's not very good criticism. I mean, I don't, the word good is a tricky one, Um, but the character who is doing this criticism and doing this research is so kind of like sideswiped by her own losses and her own traumas and is having a hard time engaging in the way you would want to in a very serious work of criticism. Um, so I've had a few, like some of the reviews of the book, very interestingly, sort of criticized it on the basis that it wasn't the kind of criticism of Frankenstein that they would have hoped it would be, um, hmm. which I found kind of fascinating because <laughs> it's a novel mm-hmm. and it's a novel about someone trying to do good criticism yeah. and failing because of what's happening. In yeah, the and so the scene with going to the lake, literally, I don't know if I remember the exact words, and I'll never find them since the pages are so out of order, but it says something like, I thought it would be helpful to go and stand and look at an alpine lake yeah. or something. Yeah, like. it's not like I thought it would be helpful to go to the archives and find the like, you know, original drafts of Frankenstein or something. It was the kind of research this character is doing is just sort of standing paralyzed in front of a lake and then not being able to sleep and then trying to take a walk through 
a, a forest which has been burned down and getting too nauseous and having to go home. And so it's like, yeah, this is the kind of research she's doing. Well, so I, a lot of times I'm on the review committee for these awards called the Stanley Awards and students at the Writers Workshop and the nonfiction program will use those to go do research for the mm-hmm. novels they're writing. And honestly, a lot of times the research plans are kind of like that. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, you know, it'll be, I, I mean, sometimes it will be, I'm going to visit this very specific archive, but sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be a little more vague, like I'm going to try to experience the culture of, of, of this place. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, I didn't, even though, as you're saying, the, the character is not particularly purposeful or maybe doing like good research in those moments. I wondered if, I, I don't know, I've never written a novel. So, I mean, yeah. how much of it is sort of stumbling uh, your, yeah. your way into... I mean, I would say, know. actually, that's like the, the perfect research for writing a novel is stumbling around and sort of experiencing things. And um, I, I don't think it's great not great research if you're trying to write a book of criticism about mm-hmm. um, Mary Shelley. Although, like, some of my favorite books are kind of weird sort of mashups of criticism and fiction, and I'm not really sure. So when I say good criticism, I'm not really sure what I'm talking about right now. But, um, yeah, I do... I... I do think that for writing a novel, the question of research is a tricky one. Often I have thought by going to archives that I was researching a novel and then suddenly the novel is an entirely different thing and a novel mm-hmm. will take you where it goes. And, and and that trip to the archive then was fundamental, even though it was for an entirely different novel. Like I, I just think it's harder to kind of plot what the novel is going to be in advance and you just have to learn things and experience things and see where it takes you. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes that's actually kind of like the process of writing a scholarly monograph too. I mean, I I know with my first one, I had that, I had this moment where I realized the book I was trying to write was not the book that was going to work. And I, you know, and, and all of the kind of things I was doing in the archive were actually leading me in a very different direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which I think is a pretty magical thing. And some of my favorite books are sort of track that process of sort of strange academic research and like the weird rabbit holes that you go down. And every time I wrote an academic paper, 100% of the time my experience was getting to my thesis in the last paragraph of my paper and having it be an entirely different thesis yeah. than I thought it was going to be and then having to go back and revise. And then you and then you throw it out and start start from there. Yeah, I tell students a lot of times that's when you know you're really revising is when you go to the book, you, know, you go to the end and you <laughs> yeah. find out that's really what you're yeah. going to argue. Um, Stephen Booth, who was a Shakespearean, you know Booth and his yeah. edition of the sonnets, he was at yeah. Berkeley when I was there and he gave me he was the only person I really ever encountered in a graduate program who talked at all about writing mm-hmm. with with us. And um, two pieces of advice he gave me about my prose were one: I'd written a paper I was really proud of, and he and he said, um, "Your prose is a bully," um, <laughs> <laughs> because because I was leading clauses with like, of course, yeah, you know, everyone yeah. knows this or that, and your prose is a bully. And then he had this, and he, and he said, like, you need the thing you have to remember when you're writing is. Just, I always want to be honest and tell the like you know you're you're trying to pursue a kind of thesis mm-hmm. um you're 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 and you're pushing so hard against all this counter evidence that if you just kind of go with you know what, yeah. what you know the the argument that's kind of presenting itself against the grain here you yeah. you know you you're really able to be honest in a different way and yeah. those two things really were helpful whenever yeah. i started trying to write yeah. books 
for me, the really freeing thing about writing fiction as opposed to writing criticism, although I'm not sure they have to be at odds, I just had a very firm idea of sort of what I needed to do in making an argument, is that um, fiction can be about the process of getting to the argument, and that I don't need to go back and revise the novel mm -hmm. and sort of trick... Um, like trick the reader into thinking I knew all along. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Like, and, and my favorite um, writers of fiction are writers who kind of generously pull you along the process of getting to the understanding at the end rather mm -hmm. than kind of presenting the mm -hmm. understanding in the beginning and um, and then like building toward it from there, which feels it feels a little le less honest, I suppose. I, to I had never really thought about that, but yeah, I think you're totally right. So so what are a couple, you mentioned a couple, some, like some of your favorite works that are, sort of hybridizing this um, what are a couple of those yeah i mean i i think i was thinking of sebald sebald i'm not mm -hmm. sure I'm the right way to pronounce his name ever but um like he is sort of often really critically engaging with a series of works or with one work um like you know robert brown it's robert brown's the iron burial oh, Thomas? um mm -hmm. and that kind of like the character who sort of seeps into the cracks around that kind of critical mm -hmm. thinking is for me a real model of the kind of thinking I want my my novels to do. Um, and yeah, like I, you know, with, with his work also, I wouldn't think to present his, the character who's a very melancholic and sort of depressed and self-absorbed character. I wouldn't think to read that in terms of whether or not he was a good critic of mm -hmm. Brown. I would read it in terms of what his criticism of Brown sh sort of tells us, shows us about the character. Yeah, like yeah. What we learn about him in the process of his research about Brown. And what I love about it is this kind of like, this kind of like triangulation that it sets up that like we begin to know the character by the ways in which the character knows this other figure. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that kind of knowledge that I'm really interested in reading fiction, like um, sort of how we build knowledge over the course of a experience that's that's so much in the theme actually of what i've been trying to do with this podcast so far because one of the things i ask people about and i'll circle back around to it is is a, a lot about you know the kind of education that brings them towards writing the book that they're mm -hmm. writing and this one it's you know it's, it's obvious that you know one one piece of that involves frankenstein but i already mentioned you having a phd before getting there, actually, I want to talk to you. This is autofiction, mm -hmm. um, but it also says, you know, reproduction, a novel, right, on yeah. the, the front. And, yeah. and um, it also includes science fiction, which is not something that generally finds its way into autofiction. Yeah. So autofiction is kind of a new genre for me. I'm mm -hmm. still getting my head around it a little bit and mm -hmm. figuring out, like, how I suppose I define, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I would define. What would be your kind of explanation of it to yeah. me or somebody who... I'm not sure I really know either. Like I teach a graduate class in the NWP on autofiction and the whole idea of the class is like, what is this thing? Mm -hmm. Everybody talks about it differently. Critics um, sort of in the popular like trade magazines tend to, I think, really lazily just say anything in which the narrator's name either is the name of the author or their life like really resembles the life of the author is autofiction, which seems pretty lazy to me because every novel ever written includes characters whose lives resemble that of the author mm -hmm. like you know well i got into this i was talking with rachel yoder about this when we were talking about night bitch yeah. and you know i i had known rachel 
before and while she was writing that and especially if you know her you're like oh this is you know clearly a version of Rachel and we were talking about the question of like is I I just was asking like is this autofiction um the character is not named Rachel but yeah Yeah, but has many aspects of the author's life Um, I mean Rachel never turns turns into into a dog right um yeah I find that to be kind of a sort of lazy approach to it and then sort of the big examples of autofiction that you know when when people are doing like a history of autofiction they kind of trace it back to like Carl no- uh, Carl Ove Nausgaard mm-hmm. and um, Elena Ferrante and they're so different those two like Elena Ferrante's books feel like really Dickensian to mm-hmm. me they're like big sprawling sort of novels of manners in some ways and then Carl Ove Nausgaard's books are like sort of a diary that got published um, in a massively different way. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what people mean when they talk about both of those things as autofiction. Whereas you're in, in this one, I mean, I think a naive reader, if this didn't say reproduction, a novel on the cover, I, I think could pick it up. And basically most of the way through it would read a straightforward memoir. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's really only towards the very end mm-hmm that um that it would be very clear that that wasn't the case yeah i mean um the like the character of anna who's the sort of um co-main character in the longest section of the book um is totally invented um and the science that she uses to like basically artificially inseminate herself with genetically engineered embryos um i don't I don't think anybody's done that, <laughs> but like, but, but it did. Really, but honestly, like, I don't know. All that CRISPR stuff is so yeah crazy, and it's happening so fast. I, yeah, I was like, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, people have genetically engineered like um, people have illegally genetically engineered human embryos, so um, it's not too far from the truth, um, or from from sort of the realm of what's possible. Um, I do think, though, I wouldn't describe the early sections as memoir. Um, and I think, I mean, I think the reason that I wouldn't, and this kind of returns to my definition of what autofiction is, is that um, it's so heavily, heavily patterned by kind of pattern, the, the story is so heavily patterned by, I'm sorry to keep repeating the word patterns, but by sort of language patterns that mm-hmm. felt important to me and by motifs that sort of recursive motifs of like, you know, isolation and moon travel and Mary Shelley and mm-hmm. moon tra- space travel and um, it felt determined by these kind of like formal rules that I had given myself um, and so this character that kind of emerged in um, friction with these sort of um, motifs I wanted to return to like lengths of sections I wanted to keep sort of patterns of sentence structure that I wanted to maintain the character that emerged from there I recognized mm-hmm. um, in the way that you recognize yourself more fully in a poem you write than you do when you're just kind of like walking down the street feeling muddled and lost mm-hmm. um, I recognized that character that character shared a lot of biographical facts with me but at the same time like there were plenty of ways in which that character you know, this is full, like, if you were to take this as a memoir, it'd be full of lies mm-hmm. and omissions. And, um, and also just like that, that character is a version of me. Um, that's quite distinct from who I actually am in my, in my life. So just to get back to the question of what autofiction is, like, I'm actually forgetting who the author is who said this, but 
there's a French writer of autofiction and academic um, critic. I think she works at Yale. Um, and I'm sorry to be forgetting her name, but she has an essay that I find really compelling about autofiction as a kind of fiction that is like poetically structured according to rhythms. Um, mm. And I find that to be really compelling. And when we read the works of autofiction that are called autofiction that I like the most, my students and I always find these like really extraordinary kind of um, experimental and also interesting like patterns of language, patterns of structure that um, they are determining the story rather than any sort of narrative arcs that people generally think of in narrative or sort of plot devices that people generally mm -hmm. think of as narrative. So, um, you know, like Sheila Hetty talks about her work as being not autofiction, but in the tradition of the novel in which nothing happens. Mm -hmm. um, and I think all of my favorite works of autofiction are in the tradition of novels in which nothing happens. Um, and yet they're being sort of structured according to other patterns than the traditional narrative arc. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And it's part, part of what makes this an interesting question to me is that I've now spent my entire career here at Iowa, you know, in, in close proximity and sometimes very engaged with the nonfiction writing program, mm -hmm. which has, you know, I started off my career as a journalist doing in, in feeling like I had a very clear idea of nonfiction and seeing that mm -hmm. category expand mm -hmm increasingly into, you know, memoiristic narratives that are often structured and sort mm -hmm. with sort of similar principles. Yeah, no, you, totally. You know? And I think you could say many of the same things about memoir. Like, I, I, I'm genuinely not sure what the difference is between autofiction and yeah. memoir. What got you interested in writing? In like, writing? Wow. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, like your, yeah, in terms of your, your, your sort of, I don't know, when I talked to Lauren Haldeman, she went all the way back to high school with yeah. like, you know, but yeah, yeah I'm kind of, I really am curious about people's educational trajectory, I, yeah. I guess. I would go back before high school. Like I was, I loved writing stories when I was in second grade and actually I, my mom was a teacher. So we went to the schools where she taught and she moved schools when I was in second grade and, and um, I was devastated because somehow I had gotten it in my head that the school where I was had better creative writing than this other <laughs> school that she was going to where I was, you know, I was going to switch there in third grade. And, um, did they have like, like a program? I, I don't know. I somehow <laughs> I had it in my head that they just had worse creative writing and I was still like deeply dismayed. Um, it was, I think it was sort of supposed to be like a good math school mm -hmm. and the school where I was, was, um, had less of that reputation. Um, but I I just wrote from the time I was, I mean, I loved okay, reading. Yeah. And so I then loved writing. Um, I think there's also something about being kind of like, it's a little bit of a secretive person. Like when my parents talk about me when I was little, sort of my favorite thing, I like had my own drawer that was like my drawer. Nobody else was allowed in there. And one of my favorite things to do was like pack a suitcase and leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. There's something about like, sort of wanting to keep yourself to yourself, but then also having this kind of secret urge to actually communicate yourself to others, but on your own terms, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that makes for a writer. And I think, I think I just sort of have some of the character traits or had some of the character traits of a writer even back then. Um, so I did, I just loved writing from an early. So, so from very early, were there, were there particular classes 
at any stage, high school, college, where that started to feel more like a real, I don't know, so did you always think, from, from early on, did you always think, I'm going to write novels? What, what did you major in in college? I majored in English okay. in college. Um, I secretly wanted to be a writer always, um, but thought it was like an absurd and foolish Was this thing the era in which, I mean, when I went to become an English major, all of us wanted to be creative writers, but there wasn't even a, there wasn't really a creative writing program. Like you could yeah. take a couple classes in poetry yeah. or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was a kind of, was it a pretty traditional sort of uh, English? Where, where did you go? I went to Harvard for my okay. undergrad. Um, you say that with the of the kind of dropped voice, almost secret <laughs> shame, and admitting that you went to. I went to Oxford. Um, <laughs> went to Harvard. Um, okay, so you went to Harvard. It was a pretty traditional program. Um, yeah, I suppose it was a pretty traditional program. Um, by then, by that point, I was. I understood that it would like. I think. I came from a world where there like weren't very many professional writers and the idea of saying you want to be a professional writer felt sort of ludicrous to me. So I was always sort of scared, intimidated, and I, I couldn't quite bring myself to apply for the creative writing classes until the very end. Um, and then I applied for a nonfiction writing class and a fiction writing class and got rejected from the fiction writing class mm. and got into the nonfiction writing class. And so did the nonfiction writing class. Then after college, still, I, I think I felt like it was a ludicrous thing to say I wanted to be a writer um, and applied, you know, didn't think to apply for MFAs um, and applied for PhDs in literature, um, which... I love, like, as a time to write and think and become a writer, for me, it was just a really thrilling and sort of ideal eight years or seven years mm -hmm. or, or how mm -hmm. many it was. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that we're in a moment finally where, um, like, people who are in PhD programs are, are, are actually not... Like, it's not something you need to hide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to do creative and, and other forms of writing. But, yeah. I mean, even when I came to Iowa, part of what really drew me here was that I kept going. I, I, I had been struggling going back and forth. And, you know, I worked in journalism for a while. And I, I loved journalism. I liked doing that kind of writing. But I needed, like, I, I wanted to do, I, I don't know, I sort of immerse myself more in, in longer projects and, and research. Um but then as soon as I got into the PhD program, I was really like, kind of discontented with the limitations around yeah. the audience that you were writing for there. Yeah. And Iowa felt really like a nice, yeah. happy medium where yeah. you could, you know, you could actually do both. And I think yeah. we're increasingly yeah. embracing that. Um, why did you decide to do Renaissance? When, or did, did you apply always like thinking you were going to do Renaissance yeah. when you did your PhD? I applied. They had a... I think they called them areas when I applied, and they had an area called Poetry and Poetics, and I applied oh, to the Poetry okay. and Poetics area. And then they, I, I believe I'm getting this right, I think they kind of dismantled it um, about, like, sort of a year after I got there. So then I had to sort of find a time period, and I had gone in just wanting to sort of, <laughs> A, historically think about poetry, <laughs> um, and... Uh, I'm not wanting, like specifically wanting to, but that was the field. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I that's what I sort of formed my idea, my application idea around. So then it was sort of, we 
we needed to find like a historical period to fit ourselves into those of us who had come in to do poetry and poetics and um it was actually um john rumrich who was there and i had taken a class with him on 17th century poetry that i loved i mean i still 17th century 16th and 17th century poets are some of my favorite herbert is one of my favorite poets of all time and I just found his approach to poetry to be thrilling and his teaching to be thrilling and just kind of went because he could direct my dissertation. Uh. I, I like I, I say that like I sort of was backed into a corner. Having done it, I found it to be a fascinating time period to immerse myself in. I'm thinking about it sort of hand in hand with the history of time of the time period it was fascinating for me. And it was really formative. I mean, I, I don't think I would have written my second book, Speak, without that background. There's like a sort of thread of a 17th century character in there. And also just the kind of thinking that I was doing about sort of new scientific discoveries and the incorporation of mm -hmm. those new scientific discoveries into like faith and sort of spiritual elements, sense of self in the 17th century were like absolutely what formed that novel. Well, okay, so yeah, because that's a theme through all through yeah. through these, you know, speak Trinity reproduction are all really interested in this mm -hmm. interplay between science and mm -hmm. ethics and spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, I, I get that partly coming from the Renaissance. What what are I'm, I'm curious where that is coming from. Are there are there other classes, or is this something that you've always kind of been interested in the same way that you're interested in writing? Full stop. Yeah, I mean, I was always interested in science. Like, I, biology was my favorite subject in high school. And for a little while, when I was not admitting that I wanted to be a writer, I was saying that I wanted to be a doctor and I finished my pre meds and stuff. And the, so, and I, I do think that sort of thinking about like the animals that we are, like the physical animals that we are in, and then these sort of human brains that are trapped in these physical bodies that we have is something that I find like really fascinating and how we want to be better than just sort of dirty little animals. <laughs> mm. And then so often we are just dirty little animals. Mm. And, and so often what we love in each other is the animal nature of each other. And, and we love animals. And, you know, I, I have this real interest in, and I think it's comes from a little bit of um, a person who had trouble with having a body growing up and, um, you know, I like struggled with eating disorders and I struggled a lot with what it was to like sort of want to eliminate the body nature of myself and just be mind. And still to this day, I just, it's important to me to kind of sit with what it is to be an animal. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I end up writing about. Yeah. And that's why sort of this like science and understanding of, of the biological and the technological hand in hand with. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't, that sort of tension certainly doesn't get any easier when you're in academia, I, I think, generally, yeah. um, because you, you are in the space that in so many ways, like, does sort of think about people as, you know, disembodied intellects. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and I, I just also think in the contemporary world that we live in, like, where so much of our life is spent kind of online or on social media or in sort of a disembodied way, like that relationship that we have to our body, I think is um, is very strange. This is a total theme that's emerging in the, fir in the fir first three of these that I've, <laughs> that I've done. Um, 
I also wonder if that's partly because the first three people that I've interviewed, Lauren Haldeman, Rachel Yoder, and you, have all in one way or another been writing about motherhood. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's a question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether it's a question, but I it does that the sort of experience of motherhood for me really like sort of forced my hand. And I've, I've, I think I've always like, as, as I've come into adulthood, I've believed that we need to accept the fact that we're animals and that we are our bodies <laughs> and mm. um, not try to like, I, you know, I grew up the other aspect of my growing up that is kind of fits into this is that um, I played sports very seriously. I was a professional squash player from the time that I was quite young and, um, like very, very serious about that. And the way that I imagined that was this kind of like, you become this like total master of your body. Like you perfect the angle of your wrist. You perfect the way that you like the steps that you will take. And, um, you know, you do so much training with the attempt with this sort of, yeah, just sort of asserting this mastery over your body. And then I think I imagined going into motherhood that like I would be able to assert the same mastery over the experience of like having a baby and it very much was the opposite it was like no you will have no control over this yeah. situation and like your body will be will do what it needs to do and you will have absolutely you won't be in charge of any of it and in fact you might be completely defeated by it mm, <laughs> and like mm. it was a very um like any lessons that i thought i had learned kind of intellectually i had to learn to like the the lowest cell in my body and um it was it, it did kind of shake me yeah it's i mean parenthood sort of does that a little bit too because you yeah. you know you especially I don't know actually how much you're it took me a while to get here actually when my kids were your age I think I still sort of had the sense that um you know they were like an extension of self and mm -hmm. and in some ways you you know definitely recognize them as individuals but I feel like I've got things under control and then you hit these moments as a parent where you realize like you really don't yeah. I mean these are yeah. <laughs> there are these you know circumstances and things that happen and yeah. bodies work in crazy ways and yeah. sometimes you just yeah. you, you have very little control over that you can feed them whatever perfect diet you want to try to yeah. feed them and they're still going to get sick in ways that are yeah. scary they and i won't eat that perfect diet also <laughs> yeah yeah well and that's the other thing you can invest a lot of time and effort in trying i mean actually at this point in my life having four who are all teenagers i feel like a lot of the time and energy that i invested in parenting was just wasted because they're all like so they were all raised in the same way but they're mm -hmm. all completely different and yeah. so it feels like biology is yeah. exerting itself with this yeah. force that i wouldn't have I, like i i believed a lot more in nurture yeah. when they were little <laughs> than i do now yeah it still plays a role but yeah it's kind of comforting to me actually to hear that just because like I obsess over like, oh God, I, I did that potty training all wrong and am I, you know, changing her personality forever? And I like the idea that like her personality is going to defeat any attempts at like good parenting. That yeah, I... <laughs> it just emerges. I mean, and I've got, tw and, you know, with us, I've got twins too and you really see yeah. it there because you're like, well, you know, you've, you've eaten the same things, <laughs> yeah. you've lived in the same house, you've been treated the same way yeah. and they are just like, you couldn't be more different and it really does i don't know the the biological imperative presents yeah. itself um 
Coming back to the bodies and animals thing, um, were you into Hobbes when you were studying? I did. I wasn't doing a lot of Hobbes reading, okay. but I, I do. I mean, you know, was reading Milton, thinking about you know his feelings about the embodied spirit and things like that. Yeah, yeah. The, and the, Herbert too has a complicated relationship to the body. Yeah, for for, for done for 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 sure. Um, I. Uh, talk a lot about Don. Um, so what about, um, what about Shelley actually and Frankenstein? Mm-hmm. Did you ever study it in grad school? I don't think I did ever read it in grad school. And you know, the fir- the earliest times that I read it, I believe I was in college when I read it first. And I really didn't like it because I was under the impression that I was meant to like Frankenstein, the, you know, the, the scientist mm-hmm. Frankenstein. And I hated him so much, and therefore, for some reason, I didn't like the novel. And then when I went back to it when I was writing this, and um, I was thinking sort of about the world differently, I realized that the book is about all the mistakes that Frankenstein makes, and in fact, about his cruelty and what happens when you make a creature and don't take care of it, and when you can't bring yourself to love a creature that you've made. And um, to me... The second time around, that's what it felt like the book was about. And I'm sure I'll read it again and realize that I was all wrong. And, um, you know, part of what I was thinking here is just how much where you are in life inflects what a book is to you. Like how reading a book is this act of sort of weird, unholy merger, in fact, Mm -hmm. where like you bring yourself to the book and the book brings itself to you and you create this creature. (laughs) And um, I... I was sort of thinking about that as I was writing. Yeah, that's so. In, that is an interesting phenomenon as well. That there is maybe something when you're young in which you feel compelled to identify with the kind of protagonists. Mm-hmm. I think because anytime I ever teach Shakespeare, if I ever teach Romeo and Juliet, this mm-hmm. is always the the sort of revelation mm-hmm. in those classes where I'll tell the students, you know, you're allowed not to like yeah. Romeo or Juliet, yeah. and if you think that they're silly and problematic yeah. impulsive yeah. Like that maybe is maybe that's the point yeah. and there's always this moment in those classes where you see that it's just like this relief yeah. that they don't have to like these characters yeah. although i have to say i just recently went back to romeo and juliet because my daughter is reading it and i kind of convinced myself that i've been teaching it wrong <laughs> in that way I, and and I, I have this whole different sympathy now yeah. for, for them so i think the other part of what you're saying about just the different relationship that you have at mm-hmm. different times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know where that sense that you need to identify in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something that is kind of implicit in the way we're taught books when we're younger? Or do you think it's something that we just bring to them? Yeah, that's a good question. Like w- When I'm talking with my students now, I t- in creative writing classes, we think about this a lot because it does feel like they're first many of their first inclination is to respond to a story in terms of whether or not they liked the characters or identified with the characters and like I try to say like value and cherish that response but then let's take let's go from there to like why do you think the author might have wanted you to might have caused you like that this was a purposeful thing the author has caused this feeling of revulsion Mm -hmm. to come into your body using this and this and this tools and why might they have made that decision? And like, does that 
does that feeling stay constant? Does it change ever? Why would it change at this particular point? Like sort of taking it as like the first step of understanding and then like continuing from there. And um, I don't know, I think that either students are told your feelings about characters don't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of upsetting and depressing mm-hmm. because like, are we supposed to read without having any feelings about the characters? That's sad, that's a huge loss. Or they're told like, is this character good or is this character bad? And then you're sort of like moral hunting and that's kind of depressing too. And I sort of think that like, if there could be a way of being fascinated by our emotional responses to it, that that would be sort of an exciting way of reading. Yeah, but it it, it runs counter to, I mean, boy, talk about something that runs counter to like the, the sort of traditional way of mm-hmm. doing lit crit, mm-hmm. especially and, and maybe I'm meaning that traditional in a very narrow band. I mean, we're really talking about post, you know, n- new critics. Yeah. So, you know, 50s, the yeah. 50s to the early 2000s or mm-hmm. something. Because I think if you go way back mm-hmm. into the kind of origins of the field, yeah. a lot of it really was about emotional response. Yeah, yeah. And then at some point, as English departments sort of professionalized, mm-hmm. there was a little bit of an embarrassment yeah. about about that. Yeah. And, it's interesting to me that we're kind of coming full circle back to yeah. the idea that, that that really interrogating your emotional responses to a text, yeah. not not only why the author is putting them there or, or sort of provoking them, but also sort of like what they mean, yeah. maybe partly to you as a writer and yeah. a thinker that we're we're kind of yeah. back there. The other faux pas that I commit all the time is like I am interested in what the author was trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think there's a lot of evidence of what the author was trying to do in the text. Like, they chose to put those periods there, and they chose to put those short chapters there. And so what were they doing with those choices? And um, I am very interested in that. And, yeah. I, don't I, I, I think that's a, a worthwhile folk. I mean, I remember one of the first things that... When I, John Kerry, did you ever read him at all? He, he was a Miltonist, and is a Miltonist. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also written books on... Dickens, and he wrote an incredible memoir, and he's a really interesting figure at Oxford. And one of our f- first tutorials, I don't know, I had written something about, you know, what done meant or something. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, of, of course we all really do care primarily, actually, about what done meant. Mm-hmm. Some people will, you know, will, will, um, will you know ding you on that so you just have to find a different way of <laughs> saying, um, so saying it so so you say um what the text shows <laughs> you know or something like that and he gave me like a little hack because he he was always very invested in this idea too yeah. that it's um that actually you just want to find a workaround to talking about what the, what, what the author meant because yeah. that is what i mean he was a kind of biographical critic he yeah. wrote a really beautiful book on Dunn called life mind art mm-hmm. where he kind of traces a lot of Dunn's poetic yeah. sensibility to his apostasy you know yeah. the fact that he abandoned his faith yeah. um in this kind of really traumatic way yeah. when, and and um and so I think he was always I, this part of the reason I've always been interested in that is that he kind of gave me a little bit of authorization yeah. too but but also the emotional response too like I I mean I feel like even bringing in like what it was like to read like did it take you a longer time to read this section did it take you less time to read mm-hmm. this section was this did this section cause you to get up and go get coffee like 15 times how many times did you check your phone while you were reading this section like the physical experience of reading for me is 
one of the most important places to start in terms of understanding it. Like the author wanted you to struggle to stay in the arms of the text or the author wanted you to fall into the arms of the text mm-hmm. like without any second thought. And um, I, I just think that all of those things are sort of important to like value as, as ways of understanding. Yeah, I do too. And there, I mean, this kind of takes us into one of my hobby horses, but especially when you have, you know, AI at this point, I mean, I guess this is maybe the, it's not exactly one of your hobby horses, but you've written, you have written a whole novel yeah. uh, about it, but um, which was, you know, very prescient in the way it, it was, you know, almost predictive of, of the way these things are developing. But when you have AI that can digest and analyze a text pretty competently mm-hmm. in the way, you know, chat GPT and, and some of these texts are, I, I just feel like it's it's even more a compelling reason to look at, you know, to kind of start in some ways with how we're responding as yeah. humans to yeah, these Yeah, I texts. mean, absolutely. I think one of the really interesting things about AI is that it should challenge us to think a little bit more deeply about, like, what makes our intelligence actually different? And in fact, like what in which ways is our intelligence better, superior to um, to an artificial intelligence? Um, certainly not in its sort of like vast capacity for imbibing information. We've all read less than Mm -hmm. GPT has. We've all, um, yeah, I mean, we've had less of an education in in books (laughs) than GPT has, but we have bodies and like we have, um, you know, we've touched the table, we've like been rained on, we've hugged somebody, all of these things. Like, so why, I, I just think now more than ever, we should be kind of, placing such a high premium on the kind of intelligence that our bodies give us. Yeah, and sometimes the sort of, and it's precisely those moments when a text, when it when it sort of pulls you up short, yeah. you, you know, when it does stop you and yeah. you kind of grind to a halt and yeah. you struggle. Yeah. Those are interesting moments and yeah. they're not ever something, I mean, in a, any AI is meant to turn through very quickly and process right. very quickly. But what we're actually interested in in readers often is mm-hmm. those I mean, I think about like what the Russian formalist argued about mm-hmm. sort of, you know, how poetry will make it will reveal the sort of stoniness of the stone. Yeah. You know, the, the yeah. those sort of moments when you you um, you connect what you're reading to yeah. an experience that you've had in a way that you would have never really seen before. Yeah, yeah. Um, or like Emily Dickinson talking about knowing a poem is good when the hairs stand up on the back of her neck. Like, I, I just think that... Um, there's no reason to discount the kinds of intelligence that our bodies give us, the kind of reactions to a text that our bodies make, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's, I think, I'm, I think we totally agree on this. <laughs> we, we could just affirm one another on this. That's, I quoted that Emily Dickinson poem in the little piece I wrote for Newsweek on, uh, because she says, you know, I, it makes me feel like the top of my head has been oh, taken yeah, off. Exactly. It's, that, it's, that, yeah. it's that feeling um, that I think is so interesting yeah. there. And, yeah, figuring out how to tap back into that as sort of teachers and, and readers yeah. is, is um, I think, really important right yeah. now. So on teaching, um, I, I'm curious how, has your teaching changed as you've written different types i mean this is a really different type of book in a lot of ways from the other ones that you've written um that's a very broad question but i'm curious about i guess how your 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 teaching is changing as you write yeah yeah i mean i think my sense of like what i want 
a novel to do and be has changed over the course of my writing career. Um, I feel more in my own practice, I feel more certain that I want the novel to do the same thing I want a lyric poem to do, which is to sort of show the mind and heart of the writer and um, show it sort of over a series of like patterns and recursive patternings on the page um, so that it's almost contagious, you know, so that the reader will like breathe in the same way that the author is breathing and, and feel in the same way that the author is feeling. Um, and I think my fiction has kind of moved in that direction. Like I'm, I'm moving more and more toward wanting to kind of replicate the movement of thought um, rather than kind of conjuring other characters or conjuring other places. Um, and that just feels like what I want my novels to do. Like I'm very aware, you know, I'm reading Anna Karenina right now again and that's not what Tolstoy is going for. And I'm not going to be the person who says Tolstoy is not a good novelist. And, um, or like, I, you know, my students shouldn't be trying to write like Tolstoy. Um, so in my teaching, like, I'm aware that I'm just more and more fascinated by kind of how we replicate thought and feeling on the page. Um, and I do tend to kind of teach and point my students toward those things. Um, but I try also to make it clear that like telling a spinning a good yarn, like, you know, there are other really like great ways of writing a novel, but that's just what I tend to be like most fascinated by right now. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me and uh, I will see you in the hallway soon. <laughs> Sounds good, thank you. That's Louisa Hall, who teaches in the University of Iowa's English department and whose novel Reproduction is on sale in stores and on audiobook now. Thanks again to Lauren Haldeman of the Writing University for doing all the work that makes this podcast possible. And thank you for listening. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, as long as you're not too mean.